Welcome to Coastal Front. Join us each week as we sit down with the movers and shakers of Vancouver to discuss stories of business, politics, accomplishment, and failure. Our aim is to keep you dialed into what matters most in our city. Now, here's your host, Andrew Johns. Okay, here we are. Uh, Sam Wyatt, good friend of mine. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today, Sam. Looking forward to our conversation. Uh, you're an interesting guy. You are a local realtor in town, married guy. Uh, my wife knows your wife, Jen. They're very close friends. Dad of two wonderful young girls. But you're also an avid climber, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Right on. And, and how you got into that. So, uh, so thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andrew. This is great. So before we started, we were talking about some of these uh, experiences you had, and, and let's just uh, start off by talking about your biggest feat, which I think would be probably one of your biggest feats, was was climbing Everest. Um, you went to climb Everest actually twice, is that right? Yeah, <clears throat> true. I, I tried in 2009 and was unsuccessful, uh, and maybe I was unsuccessful because I had too much information, is how I would describe it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, maybe a little closer to the mic, too. Oh, yeah, for get your, closer yeah. to the mic. Here yeah. we go. Yeah. There we go. Um, so, so yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, how did you get into climbing? Well, you know, the first place I ever went rock climbing was in Banff long ago when I had moved out West to become a ski bum. Okay. I grew up in Ontario and, uh, anyway, a buddy of mine said, Hey, you should try rock climbing. You're going to really enjoy it. And so we went out to Cougar Canyon in, uh, Canmore and, uh, did some climbing and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. But then a long time went by until I wound up in uh, Vancouver and uh, I started rock climbing here, but I really got into climbing when I was a part of a meditation center, the Sri Chinmoy Meditation Center, okay. where uh, physical activity and in particular endurance events were advocated as a means of making spiritual progress. And so there's a whole crew of guys here on the coast who are into climbing. And I thought, well, this sounds fantastic. I'm in, you know, let's start climbing. And everybody's goal was always, let's go climb Mount Everest. Wow. So that's where it all So began. What, the spiritual center, where is it based yeah. out of? Well, so the, the Sri Chinmoy Meditation Center is centered in New York City. Okay. But there are centers all over the world, and there was one here in uh, Vancouver and one in Victoria as well. Okay. Yeah. Is this when you became a monk? Yeah, effectively. Okay. I didn't dress up and shave my head or anything. Oh, okay. You know, okay. I, looked like, I looked pretty <laughs> much like I do now. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, led a fairly disciplined spiritual life. So, yeah, like no drugs and no sex and no alcohol. You know, it was a, wow. a fairly austere life. Uh, what time, how old were you back then? That was between ages about 20 and, uh, I, I don't know the dates exactly, yeah. but like 30, you know, really? like that was the decade. Yeah. 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 Prime time. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Prime time. Yeah. So when you look at your, your climbing, um, where was your first, I mean, I've done a little climbing myself. I went and climbed Baker and I've uh, almost summited Rainier. So I've got a little bit of experience, nothing to the extent of what you did with, with Everest and other locations. But where was your first overnight climb? Do you remember? Oh, that's a good question. I suspect that that was actually on Mount Baker. On Baker. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. In fact, I know it was. That was. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's talk about Everest. I mean, because I'm sure if I asked you what every mountain you climbed, we'd have to have like four hours um, or longer. Yeah, sure. Um, but <laughs> let's let's talk about Everest. I mean, it, as I understand, that is kind of like the, the mecca of mountains to climb. It's kind of like, uh, I mean, do you, how many people have climbed Everest? Do you know? I don't know the exact answer, but it's something like 4,000 people. Uh, in history. Change, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then the real stat, though, between yeah. me and you are climbers who have climbed without oxygen. Okay. So we climbed with bottled oxygen. So 
I would be amongst those who would say, ah, it's kind of cheating. Okay. You know, it makes a big difference. It makes it a lot easier. And so um, there's probably about 150 people have climbed it without oxygen. Without oxygen. I think that's the number. I, wow. Again, I don't know precisely. Yeah. Who was that famous first person that climbed Everest? Oh, uh, that was uh, Edmund Hillary. Edmund Hillary. Yeah, yeah, and then there's some argument as to whether or not the, what is it, 1927 expedition got to the summit via the North Route or not, but they never made it home, so... Okay. okay. Doesn't count. Doesn't right count. You got to yeah. be able to tell the gotta story. Got to come home. Yeah. Or it doesn't <laughs> tell matter. the story. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. the Hillary step is named after Edward Edward Hillary. Then. Edmund Hillary. Yeah. Oh, Edmund. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Okay. Yep. And what year was that? Ooh, I don't know the answer. Any idea? Yeah. Is that, Let me pull uh, that up, Ross. Pull that find up. out. Let's yeah. Find the answer to that. Would he have had if oxygen? Yeah. They they use bottled oxygen. In fact, all of the initial expeditions did as well. Yeah. Uh, dating way back into the twenties when they were making the first forays. Uh, bottled oxygen was never considered cheating then because it was all new territory. No one had ever been that high. And yeah. frankly, people thought it would be dangerous to go that high without bottled oxygen. Yeah. Well, wow. it's, it's really only Reinhold Messner who, in spite of uh, physicians and scientists saying, well, you're never going to make it. You're going to kill yourself. And if you do make it, you're going to have serious brain damage. Uh, and he said, nah, I'm going to do it anyway. And he yeah. did. And since then, things have changed. He was the first. He was the first. Uh, 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 with no oxygen. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Edmund Hillary did it on uh, the 29th of May, 1953. Okay. 1953. Yeah. Oh, oh. Ross, by the way, is Sam's microphone close enough for, for you, or do we need to look at, closer? At point, Should yeah. I get closer? Yeah, you, you, you start good and then relax and yeah. inch away. So do you recall when you first started to seriously think about climbing uh, Everest? Do you have any recollection? Oh, yeah, you bet. Yeah. So okay. I alluded it, it to it when I was talking about the meditation center. Yeah. And that whole life of uh, the principle was like, we're trying to make progress here. Okay. And by challenging ourselves with things that we thought were impossible and then achieving them, that we change our mind. You know, we change our resolve. And it allows us then to maybe tackle other things like fear or doubt or hate. Right. Uh, which we might also just say, oh, that's human nature and you can't change it. So by changing our mind outwardly, we can then tackle inner uh, dilemmas. So. That life in the meditation center led into doing this physical activity. And as I said, hey, Everest was always the goal. So we started wow. setting a whole series of plans to climb different mountains to get prepared. Wow. And uh, we did uh, some trekking peaks in Nepal. And then the first significant trip we went on was uh, to South America, to Huascaran in Peru. Okay. And I don't remember the elevation on that. It's, uh, boy, that's a good question, 6,700 meters or something like that. Yeah. And that was a real fiasco trip. And I got super sick. Uh, I got really altitude ill. Oh, wow. And so that experience really, it was one of those uh, breaking points for me where I was lying in my tent, sick as a dog, headache, throwing up all night. Uh, and the plan was to go down the next day. And I had to go through this experience of, hey, maybe this just isn't for me. You know, like maybe I'm just not, you know, physically capable of climbing yeah. at altitude. And so I went through this process I'd described as the death of my ego related to climbing, where okay. you know I dis disposed of the idea of being a mountaineer. Yeah, and it was pretty painful because I had created a persona of myself as, "Hey, I'm a mountaineer." That's you know, yeah. I was identifying That's, with yeah. it as as if it was me. And so once I gave that up, I was like, "Okay, great, let's just go down and get the hell out of here." But on the way down, we we traveled down a thousand meters the next day, and not only did I feel better, I felt super excellent like i felt yeah. so good and the guys who came down with me i said guys well hey maybe we should just spend the night here and then let's go back up 
and they would have none of it. They were angry. You know, they were angry with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, how much of that was maybe related to the fact that you had this huge pump of oxygen coming back into your body? Because if you drop a thousand meters, you probably are gaining a lot of oxygen, right? It's like going to Vegas and yeah, you're, the, you're nailing it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You, not only are, are you gaining oxygen, but there's also the pressure is changing. Yeah. So your body's able to deal with uh, the differentials more easily. Yeah. So what it taught me right then was, hey, it's not me. It's uh, it's the mountain. It's the mountain. And it's I the... can maybe if I just go slower, like we're not that it's not that far a difference. I'll just move right. up more slowly. Yeah. And so we got to town and to make the long story story short. I ended up coming back and end up soloing the mountain on my own because no one else would come up with come me. Come on. You so did the mountain by yourself? I did. And there was a section that was a really icy slope that I was just going up, you know, by myself in the middle of the night, working up slowly, uh, made it to the summit, came down, then had to down climb this icy slope. And one of my crampons was broken. So I had this one kind of loose crampon. And so every move, I was like making sure something was attached properly. You got to be kidding me. I ain't kidding. Yeah. And then Does Jen know about this? I don't know that she does, but this predated her, so it kind of doesn't matter. She didn't even know me then. Right? Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But so then one of my buddies uh, came up, and he had promised. He was a young guy. He was only 18 at the time. Right. And he had promised the other guys, well, I'm just going up to help Sam bring his stuff down. And when he got there, I said, oh, no, you're here now, man. You're at the high camp. Let's set you up to climb this thing. And so I introduced him to a couple of American climbers. And I, I had borrowed their tent on the way up because I came up super light because I was on my own. And they said, sure, yeah, we'll take him with us. And so they went to the summit the next day. And on their way down, they were coming down that same icy slope, but they were doing it roped. And we could see from camp, they had start, somebody had started down climbing, and then they fell. They did a full rope length whipper, like they fell 300 feet. But they were, whole, they were on a line, gratefully, and at the bottom, you know, the line caught. Uh, and we're all looking from camp like, oh, man, what's going on? I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be in so much shit if that's Joan and he's hurt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they finally all get back to camp and he's fine. And it turns out it was the oldest uh, guy in the crew. Yeah. And it was Joan who said, hey, guys, like, why are we down climbing this without a rope? Like, we oh, should be doing this on belay. So he basically saved their life. The young no guy way. with the least experience who's the one like, hey, this doesn't look like a, a good move. Wow. So that kind of set us up that trip set us up to start on the next endeavor and that sent us uh, to the himalayas for the first time the following year wow yeah. now have have you generally do you have like i mean you, you sold that one which is mind-blowing to me but you obviously typically climb with a team or a group yeah are they typically the same people yes and no because mm. on high altitude trips there aren't that many people who are really keen to do it right and so my core climbing buddies were always part of the meditation center and I'm not really part of the center anymore. And a lot of those yeah. guys kind of stopped climbing. So, you know, you got to look for people. And I found a couple of other friends to climb some other peaks uh, in between the, the time in the center. Yeah. And when I finally climbed Mount Everest. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a small pool of people you got to draw from and you got to like them. Yeah, so sure. It's not always easy to find someone to go and do these things with. So you started climbing in your early 20s. When yeah. how old how old are you now? Uh, 46. And, and how old were you when you climbed Everest the first time? So that was 2009, and uh, I'll let okay. you do the math. Yeah, yeah. so okay. about 10, yeah. uh, about 10 years ago. ago. Yeah, and so you're about 36. Yeah, so you it was like, it was like a 16 year journey just to get to that point, and and you didn't even get a chance to summit that time. No, so indeed not. When no. did you summit? What was that that successful? That trip? was 2012. 2012. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why couldn't you summit the first time? Well, so the first time, so. 
after that trip that I was describing in Peru, Huascaran, yeah. we, we went the following year to climb Choyu, which is the sixth highest mountain in the world. And by most people, Where's that? What that's country? right on the Tibetan-Nepalese border. Okay. And you could theoretically climb it from either side, but most expeditions go from the Tibetan side. It's a safer route. Right. Yeah, it's and, the standard routes on that and side. And you did that one with no oxygen. Yeah, we did that one without oxygen and without any uh, Sherpa support. Right. And. And you found that to be a bigger challenge than, than that climbing Everest? That was significantly uh, mm -hmm. more difficult. Of course, we didn't find that out till later. But right. uh, climbing without bottled oxygen at 8,000 meters is a big deal. Just to give <laughs> yeah. people a reference, I'm a little bit familiar having climbed Baker, or summited Baker and climbed Rainier, but not summited Rainier. Um, as I understand it, when you get to, so you're talking in meters, I'd always thought, I've always heard it more in terms of feet. What was eight, what is 8,000 meters in feet roughly? What is that? So is it three times? Yeah. Three so point tw something. 24,000 yeah. feet. Yeah. Um, is, is it correct that at the 10,000 foot level, you have half the oxygen at sea level? Someone told me that once. I don't know what the graphs say. Uh, okay. You have a lot less and it's exponential. And the higher you go, the thinner the air gets uh, oh, wow. with oxygen. So the, the saturation is different. But also, we talked about the pressure. And that's partly why there's less, less oxygen in the air. So the pressure is lower and lower and lower. And your body has to deal with that. So two of the principal um, things that can happen to you, uh, the sort of these are the things that can kill you, are pulmonary edema and cerebral edema. What are those? And it's just fluid leaking through membranes that otherwise would have been impermeable, but the change of pressure has meant that your body is still trying to deal with keeping that membrane impermeable. So fluid either leaks into your brain or fluid leaks into your lungs. You gotta be kidding me. I, I'm not kidding you. So that's wow. being slow and meticulous about acclimatization is, is really crucial. And that's, you know, a lot of deaths in the mountains happen. I guess this is the same analogy of why divers have to take time to re resurface from a deep dive. Yeah, same same acting influence, pressure, yeah. different kind of experience, but yeah, yeah, it's a similar kind of effect in that it's pressure that's the to blame for those kinds of ailments. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what's the result? Because I know these are the two sicknesses that often lead to deaths, right? So, so what happens when, say, you're at a high altitude and you're, you're or you're near a summit and someone starts to really see symptoms of this? What what are the symptoms? Well, ideally, you never get close to the summit with those kinds of symptoms, but uh, it, severe uh, pulmonary edema, you'd, they'd start coughing up blood, uh, and they would have real serious shortness of breath, like I can't walk across, I can't take, you know, 10 steps kind of thing. But long before that, and this is what I learned on the Waskaran trip, mm -hmm. is when you're starting to get really sick, before you actually have the major symptoms, the symptom that is most obvious is a really unjustified tiredness mm. so I felt just deeply tired in a way that I hadn't felt before and it just it's now it's a dead marker for me if I'm ever climbing at altitude and I right. feel that I'm just like oh well we need to turn around and go down because now I still feel I'm in good shape but if I keep going it's altitude sickness is insidious it's not like if it's cold out you just put a coat on you're like yeah. oh it's cold but you don't notice until it's too late unless mm. you know what the earlier to look, signs to look for are yeah 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 so when it came to Everest, so obviously it had yep. been in your mind from early days, um, but you eventually had to put a sort of dream into action. And uh, so can you, let's talk a little bit about that, because I, I think that what gets missed a lot is all the preparation and time and, and money for that matter 
that's needed to do a major expedition like that. Like how many, would you say, how many months before you did your trip were you having to plan for it in a pretty solid way? I was, I was fortunate in that regard in that I had a friend who was very well connected in Nepal. Okay. And so it was pretty easy for us to just put that into motion. And I'd also already been on several other expeditions to Nepal and to Tibet. And so honestly, it was probably about six months in okay. advance of the trip. It wasn't that big a planning process for us. And it yeah. mostly consisted of some emails and and who's, who's, who's the friend of yours? Who is this? So a buddy of mine, Chris Guest, okay. uh, who formerly of Vancouver, and uh, now well, he's living in Poland now. But okay. he went with me in 2009, and he was good friends of a guy named Iswari Podel, who owns a, an outfit called uh, Himalayan Expeditions. I or see. sorry, Himalayan Guides. And he's the back end for a lot of the big commercial uh, outfits like Adventure Consultants. So he provides Sherpa support and logistics to get those teams uh, to the mountain and provide, uh, you know, cooks and tents and all that kind of stuff. Right. So he was a personal friend of my buddy, Chris. So we were kind of on the inside track on both my trips where we had somebody who was like, hey, family, friends deal yeah. and over here. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So the first time you were in the Himalayas was for this, what sounds like your probably your most difficult climb you'd done, you'd done which is the... The Choyu trip, yeah. Choyu trip? Yeah, Choyu is the sixth highest mountain in the world, 8,201 meters. Uh, And yeah, we got to the summit of Choyu with great difficulty. And on the way down, I remember nodding off. You know, if you've been driving late at night and you're just kind of nodding off at the wheel. Yeah. I think when I tell people I was really tired, they think, oh, like your muscles were tired. You've been working so hard. But it's not like that at all. It's falling asleep tired. Yeah. Uh, So I was kind of nodding off and I'd sit down and take a, I'll just sit here for five minutes and then kind of nod off and wake up 20 minutes later and look at my watch and go, whoa, better get moving. (laughs) (laughs) So when you did the Choyu Choyu, uh, trip, were you able to see Everest with your own eyes at that that point? I should have brought a photo of that, actually, and I don't think that I did, but there's a shot of uh, my buddy Joan on the summit of Choyu looking across at Everest, and it's it's right across the valley. It's the most prominent thing in the picture. Did that have any kind of, uh, was that a moment for you? You bet. Yeah. That that sense of like, yeah, we're going there. Yeah. Took a long time. That was 1999 that we climbed Choyu. Wow. Uh, So yeah, it took a long time to finally wind up there. Wow. Uh, what are you required to prepare for a trip like Choyu or for Everest? I mean, is what, what kind of what are kind of things that the average person that doesn't climb, other than maybe you know, locally in Vancouver, does the grouse grind or something like that? What do you, you know, you're not just showing up with a couple of you know power bars, right, and a pair of sneakers. <laughs> so, what are the kind of things that you you mentioned an ice axe earlier, some yeah. crampons? I mean, what are the kind of things you need to prepare for or uh, to come to 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 do a climb like that? I always joke that, you know, fat old ladies could climb Everest, <laughs> provided the conditions were right and they had somebody leading them along and showing them how to do it, you know. Uh, and, and I'm exaggerating, I'm, I'm sure. Maybe yeah. there is one out there who could. But um, the long and short of it is that the conditions are right and you're well acclimatized and you have good weather, that the climbing itself, the actual act of getting to the summit, isn't that difficult. Okay. The trouble is that's not what mountains are like. And in my experience, your chances of success on big mountains are about 50%. That's my ratio. Yeah. You know, like going to climb a big mountain, 50% of the time we're going to make it. Yeah, I've, I've heard a stat. I remember when we went to do Rainier, um, and I was probably, I think it was a 19 or 20. Um, and I remember one, our lead, um, who is a good, good friend of mine, he ended up, she actually passed away uh, climbing himself as well. 
in those ice fields out in Alberta there. I forget which ones they were. Yep. Uh, Mark Taylor. And uh, I remember him telling us that just to manage everybody's expectations, especially me, because I, I was the youngest guy in the group. And he's like, only 50% of the people who go to Summit Rainier actually Summit Rainier. And sure enough, we were 200 feet uh, from the from the 200 meet 200 yeah 200 feet from the from the summit yep and then we got hit with this crazy storm yeah like it was unbelievable i mean i was i was really scared and you can be and, in a complete whiteout and you cannot you can be completely disoriented you yeah. can already be tired because yeah. you've been out all day climbing yeah so the real the real thing that people need if they want to do something like climb everest is a lot of experience because sure if you've never had the experience of being caught in a whiteout in a storm at sea level or, you know, whatever, a little higher, how are you going to deal with it at 8,000 meters? And how are you going to deal with it if you're running low on oxygen and you're running low on time to get somewhere? You know, what if the person you were relying on to keep you safe succumbs to altitude illness? Yeah. So if you're climbing with the Sherpa and that's the person, all your reliance is on their capacity and suddenly, oh, they're down because they've got pulmonary edema or cerebral edema and they can barely move now, and now you're the person helping them. How are you going to solve the problem if you don't have any experience? Yeah, sure. So that's the that's the main thing. If everything goes right, uh, you know, it's, yeah. just, it's just a trail, and you just walk to the yeah. top. But when yeah. things go south, how are you going to deal with it? So that's yeah. the, I would always say experience is the number one thing. Yeah. So it's 2009. You're, uh, what time of year would most people climb Everest? When did you go in 2009? The vast majority of expeditions are in the spring. In the spring. Yeah, and there's a there's a... People show up early to acclimatize, and then usually in May, uh, early May to mid-May, it just depends. There's a little break of about two weeks before the monsoon comes in. There's a high-pressure system that comes in front of the monsoons, and so that's the window to climb, where there's really stable weather for a couple of weeks. Everyone tries to get up as fast as they can before suddenly the mountain's engulfed in snow. And to answer your earlier question, which we really got sidetracked on in 2009, why didn't we make it? I spent too much time acclimatizing because my experience on Choyu told me I need to be more acclimatized than this to get to the summit. But that time spent acclimatizing, I missed the weather window, monsoons came in, a meter of snow fell on us when we got to the North Coal Camp, which is the first of the high camps on the north side where we were. And that was it. Wow. We're not climbing. Uh, game over. Why don't we, on that topic of camps, Ross, maybe you can bring up the camps and we'll have a quick look at that so yeah. that the listeners can get a sense of, um, you know, what, what are the camps? Because um, I was looking at this earlier and I looked at base camp on Everest is like almost, I think it's almost double the height of the peak of Baker. Yeah. I mean, from yeah, yeah. sea level, of course, you're already starting off at a high elevation just by flying into. Where do you fly into on this trip? Well, it depends. Most people would fly into Kathmandu if they're climbing uh, Everest, even if they're climbing on the north side. And okay. that's what we did, too. Were both your Everest trips through the north side? Yeah, both from the Tibetan side. Okay. It's a safer route. That's why we chose it. Uh, right. There's less objective danger. Uh, it's maybe less exciting to spend time in Tibet. It's not... Uh, it's dusty, it's dirty, uh, it's not as friendly, we'll say, as, as opposed to the Nepalese side. Okay. But the route itself is a safer route, and yeah. uh, you can drive right into base camp. You know, yeah. there's a military uh, installation, a seasonal military installation, and there are trucks, and there's cell service. You know, it's like, it's quite a bit different than the south side where everything's hiked in. I see, okay. Yeah. Do we have that map there, Ross? Mm, yeah. So you have base camp, and... Uh, what kind of infrastructure is there? Is it almost like a small village, or is it still pretty? 
uh, pretty limited resources. Fairly limited resources. I was describing there's kind of uh, a local temporary camp where there's all sorts of uh, local Tibetans uh, and, and Chinese people trading and doing various things just south of the the actual base camp and there's okay. a military checkpoint so not just anyone can kind of wander into where climbers are but on the other side it's just a big tent village you know just uh, north face tents or whatever sierra designs all these yeah. tents are out in the field <laughs> and then there's a couple of uh, bigger tents where there's the uh, chinese mountaineering association liaison people uh, there's a giant uh, concrete uh, dumpster where you know all the trash is getting thrown into yeah who knows what happens to that they, i presume they probably just burn it or something but uh, okay yeah not a whole lot there and then there's one building that i've never been into no one was a but that i think was the cell tower was okay. associated with that okay yeah so here's our map we've got uh, everest base camp at uh, how many meters is that is that uh, 5,300. Yeah, so this is the south side that we're looking on here. Oh, okay. And so we're on the north side. And, okay. Uh, yeah, it's quite a bit different, actually. Okay, it's so why don't, why don't you pull route. up the north side map, Ross, and while you're doing that, um, so the first expedition you went on, it was you and who else? Uh, my buddy Chris Guest, who we talked Chris about Chris Guest, okay. Yeah. Just the two of you. Mm -hmm. And then you, Chris had some access to some service, uh, Sherpa services? Or yeah, what, we, we ended up, work? his buddy uh, who he had met when he was in Nepal trying to climb Everest once before, and he had uh, rolled his ankle, and that was the end of his expedition back in the 80s. Uh, he had met Iswari back then. What's Iswari? Iswari is the name of the guy Iswari. who owns Himalayan uh, guides. Oh, 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 Iswari, okay, Iswari, that's a person. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's how we were connected, and so there's the two of us, we decided we'd hire three Sherpas to climb with us. Okay. Uh, we kind of had unlimited oxygen because of who we were going with. He just said, ah, whatever you guys need, you can have it. Uh, really? And so, yeah, we wound up on the mountain. And, and do Sherpas, uh, did they basically, their, their goal is, to, they're like pack mules effectively, I guess they're trying to help you, or they would have, maybe, yeah. I'm, maybe I'm. Yes and no. So historically, I mean, there's two things around Sherpas. One, there's the ethnic Sherpa, which is people from a particular region. Oh. Uh, and then there's Sherpa as we generally use it, which is, uh, you know, a climbing assistant, we'll call it. But increasingly, and in fact, I'd say it's the norm, most of the Sherpa climbers are no longer just porters. Most of the expertise, they're actual excellent mountain guides. Like these are well-trained and very capable and competent climbers. Right. Very different than when Edmund Hillary first climbed, sure. where the Sherpas knew nothing about climbing. <laughs> and, but now the Sherpas are in many ways they're the experts. The experts, right. Yeah, so. Well, wasn't there some record uh, achieved just a few years ago about the most summits to Everest ever by a man, and it was one. Of, it was a sh like a absolutely. It would be a Nepal uh, Nepali guy, and I I can't tell you his name right yeah, now. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, yeah. But they've climbed it, you know, some of dozens of times. Yeah. yeah, Ross, do we have that map? Yeah. Okay, so this is this this is the. Okay. Uh, okay, yeah. here we go. So we're at Camp uh, eighteen thousand. These are in feet. Um, so Camp one. Is that base camp? Yeah, so uh, in fact, when I look at that, that suggests to me that those would be the interim base camp and the, yeah, camp two might be interim base camp and camp one is probably base camp and then advanced base camp is where you actually spend most of your time. Okay. So you're, you What does that mean, advanced base camp? There's just a different name? It's just it? further forward. So the base camp on the north side you can drive into. Okay. And so everything just gets unloaded. Uh, but from base camp up to advanced base camp, it's all packed in by yaks. 
by yaks. Yeah, so there's no road after that. You're you're basically uh, following up a glacier. Yeah. And so the, there's a yak trail, and they, they pack all of the gear up to advance base camp. And that's where you wind up spending most of your time on the on the north side. Okay. Uh, they pack in quite a bit of gear. We, there's a generator. You know, we can yeah. charge phones and things like that. Yeah. Uh, we've got a cook and a cook's helper, and they're cooking all our meals, and there's kind of an eating tent. Wow. It's a pretty uh, excellent situation. The actual climbing begins on the way up to the North Coal. And North Coal. You okay. can see that there is 2,300, 100 feet, uh, 23,100 feet, and it's yeah. about 7,000 meters. Okay. Yeah. So you get to North Coal. So can you kind of walk me through uh, what happened in 2009, and then we'll talk about your actual summit? Uh, so you, you um, just maybe very quickly through 2009, where did you get stumped? Well, so we actually didn't get any higher than the North Coal. Oh, which okay. when you look at this picture, it looks like, oh, we didn't get anywhere. It's 7,000 meters. That's pretty high. <laughs> it's yeah, higher yeah. than most <laughs> mountains, you know. Um, but Isn't yeah. that higher than most planes fly? <laughs> 7,000? No, no, no. Uh, the planes are flying 30,000 30, feet. Oh, 30,000. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, so there at the North Coal, uh, that's where we got hit with a meter of snow in 2009. But the sad tale is, is my buddy Chris made it to the summit in 2009 because he was like, oh, no, man, just stay up here at advanced base camp. I said, I'm going down to base camp. I'm going to spend a couple days, and I'm going to come back up. But on my way back up, I get this message. A guy ran down to say, hey, look, we're, you know, I got to leave to go up to climb because we're going to miss the weather window. And I couldn't really move any faster. Um, I was in – I was – I met – Frank, a guy who died on Everest at the interim base camp at about 20,000 feet there. And uh, when I got up to the b advanced base camp, Chris had left the day before, and I only had maybe, uh, I, we needed four days basically to get to the summit and back, but I only had two and a half days of good weather. And it was one of those, am I going to go up or in this day? I stayed, and it turned out it was a good decision because I would have ended up in the storm that uh, later it, hit us. Yeah. Well. Sam Wyatt, this is great. We're going to take a quick break and come back and Sounds talk good. about your actual accomplishment and look at some pictures of you summiting Mount Everest. Great. Sam Wyatt, so we're continuing to talk about your two expeditions to Everest to kind of finish off this um, the 2009 expedition. What did it feel like for you flying home? You, you probably spent a bit of money too. What, is, what did it cost you roughly to have to try and make this, this trip? Uh, that one was about 20 grand which, you know, uh, is a fair amount of money. It's a lot less than being on a guided expedition. Uh, yeah. But it was still uh, time and money. The time, yeah. too. You can't get that back, you know. Yeah. How long were you, you know? gone from home for? I think eight, seven or eight weeks on that trip. Wow. Yeah. yeah. How did Jen do through all that? Uh, you'd have to ask her. Yeah. I'm sure she wasn't <laughs> excited. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. yeah, she definitely was I, not. I remember that. her and talk calling crystal probably every second or third day we were trying to get updates seeing how you're doing and uh what did it feel like for you to fly home after doing that and realizing you didn't accomplish your goal it was it was it hard it was I, I would say it was deeply disappointing because i learned about oxygen on the the last day before i left the mountain i had strapped on ox oxygen just with um, a cannula nasal cannula to sleep on the night before at the North Coal, just at a very low dose. And I remember waking up and thinking, I feel amazing. This oxygen stuff is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and then we put the masks on at the North Coal and, and started walking up the ridge just to see how far we could get. But the wind was crazy and the snow was deep and there's a line of 40 people, you know, 
trudging through the snow with the Sherpas were at the front doing the bulk of the work and they were rotating. And then even in our line, people were rotating in the line. So uh, you'd eventually wind at the back of the line where you do the least amount of work because 40 other footsteps have already, you know, pushed the snow down. Uh, so kind of rotating, but we got halfway up the ridge, not even close to the next camp up. Uh, so that whole feeling of realizing this feels great on oxygen, if only I'd known. I would have right. just gone with Chris. If only I'd known how great this oxygen stuff is, I would have just gone to the summit. And did Chris fly back with you? And, uh, uh, no, Chris went back earlier. Yeah, really? he ended up yeah. going back, and I stayed on the mountain, hopefully to get another weather window. I see. And the three Sherpas stayed with me. Yeah. Uh, so we definitely had a shot. We were going to try, but it was it just, just unrealistic. never happened. Too much snow. Yeah, too much snow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so you're back home. It's 2009. Uh, fast forward, when's your neck? You said 2012 was when you finally came back? To yeah, and I'm not sure why I picked 2012. I decided mm -hmm. I was going to consciously, you know, earmark some money to go back and climb. Yeah. And uh, I knew I was going to go and do it. It was a matter yeah. of when. So, uh, yeah, I finally, I had a couple local people look me up who wanted to uh, find out more about, hey, if we wanted to climb Everest, how would we do it? Yeah. And one of those people was a guy named Steve Curtis. And he wanted to find out deeply, you know, like, tell us more about what do I got to do to prepare. And I said, like, hey, here's what you got to do. You need to get this kind of experience, climb a few of these mountains, and, you know, you maybe can do it. Okay, so, Sam, we're talking about uh, why you chose 2012. First of all, I think that one thing to keep in mind is, like, this is a – if you don't summit Everest, it's not like you come back next week. <laughs> this is five years later. Yeah. And you, you weren't a dad in the first climb, right? Correct. Yeah. You're a dad on the second climb. Yeah. Did that have any influence in your decision-making to go back uh, at all? or It, it really didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and okay. I'm sure Jen might have felt differently at the time, but it was she well knew that I wanted to climb Everest uh, yeah. when we got together. So um, she didn't protest. She didn't yeah. say I couldn't yeah, go. Yeah, she was supportive. She's <laughs> yeah, always she been was supportive. Very supportive. Yeah. 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 So, um, so you're heading back in 2012. Who did you climb with on this trip? Yeah, so 2012, I, I had uh, I alluded to a second ago about a, a couple of people had acquired, had tracked me down to say, hey, who's a local climber? We want to one day climb Everest. What do we need to do? Yeah. Uh, this guy, Steve Curtis. So when I got back in 2009, originally, I he had looked me up. Hey, what okay. do we got to do to do this? And then the years went by, and he was keeping in touch. And I was just starting to plan, hey, maybe I'm going to go back. I, maybe I won't bring anybody with me on this trip. I'll just go on my own, and I can hire the same guys who I did last time, now good friends. Uh, hey, don't need to bring anybody along. But Steve called me the day before. I was just about to pick up the line to talk to Iswari in Nepal. And I said, you know, Steve, uh, who had now just climbed Aconcagua in very challenging conditions. Where is that? That's in South America. Uh, okay. Yeah, on the Peruvian-Chilean border. Okay. Uh, he had climbed that, and it's a pretty impressive peak. It's the tallest in the Americas. And I thought to myself, you know, if he did that, chances are, if he's coming with me, I can kind of guide him and he's going to... Yeah, uh, he, he checks he should, out. He, he's going to be all right, you yeah. know? Uh, so I said, hey, why don't you just come with me? I'm literally about to set up my expedition. Do you want to come? And so this is probably 2011 when you're having this conversation. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. late 2011. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that that's how he came on board and we... Uh, so you guys flew over together yeah. and just the two of you. So same yep. idea, just the two two man plus... Uh, Plus, plus your Sherpas. You've got it, yeah. And same uh, same team, uh, uh, Sherpas? Slightly and, different. So we okay. actually had a father and son climb with us in okay. 2009, and that same father and son, Purba and Dawa, 
those two were on the expedition again. Okay. But the guy who was with us in 2009, the third, was not there, but we had another guy who was amazing. Really? Uh, Ten Dorji. Ten Dorji. Uh, yeah. And he's one of the Sherpas who unfortunately died in that huge catastrophe on the south side where there was a big uh, uh, debris avalanche on the south side route, and uh, he died in that. Was that wow. one like 16 Sherpas passed away? That's right, yeah. yeah. Wow. He was a superstar. He was uh, amazing. Yeah. Wow. So you flew over in uh, around May, April, May of 2012? When did we leave? I think it would have been the end of March. End uh, of March? March 27th or something around then. I always say I was gone for two months, and Jen reminds me it was nine weeks. <laughs> it's not the same. <laughs> well, when you have a little one uh, yeah. that's newly born, that's uh, or, you know, it's a, it's a grind for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's, uh, so, so maybe let's uh, quickly go back to that map, and then we'll look at some of these pictures. So. Yep. Um, it, you get to base camp, mm -hmm. and and how long did you spend there before you then start the trek to advance base camp, and then and so walk us through that. Well, no time at all, and I'll okay. tell you why. So one of the things, uh, and unfortunately we don't have a photo we'll go to on this one, but we actually climbed another peak to acclimatize before going to Tibet. Oh. So this was my third time in Tibet, or this would be my fourth time in Tibet. Right. Uh, we haven't even talked about the Shishapongma expedition, but. Uh, we decided, hey, look, let's let's make sure we're ready so we don't have to spend much time in the dirty, dusty towns of Tibet. Let's go straight to base camp. So we wound up doing a trek up the Kumbu Valley, and we climbed a, a trekking peak called Lobuche, about 6,000 meters. And then we hiked back and then flew back into Kathmandu from that trip, spent a couple of days in Kathmandu eating, you know, living the dream. Yeah. And then we drove to Tibet, and now we're already acclimatized easily to that elevation of base camp. So we drove straight into base camp. We spent one night. We went up the next day to interim base camp. Yeah. So when we're looking at this map here, at 18,000 feet, you've got base camp, and then that 20,000-foot uh, they're identifying as Camp 2. We might have called that interim base camp. Okay. Spend a night there, and the next day we were in advanced base camp. Wow. So three days later, we were up at advanced base camp ready to, to start. Okay. Yeah. So you're at advanced base camp. And uh, like, what's the next steps? How many is how long does it take you? I mean, are you getting to the summit in one day, in three days? How long is this taking to get? So the next thing is to yeah. acclimatize further. And generally, expeditions today that aren't uh, using bottled or that are using bottled oxygen, generally are acclimatizing only up to about the seven thousand meter mark, which is the uh, twenty three thousand foot mark here, the North Coal Camp. Okay. The first of the high camps. There is a photo on, of getting up to the North Coal. It's kind of a glaciated, uh, steep terrain. There it is. Yeah, back one. Yeah, so that's on the way up to the North Coal Camp. And most of it is pretty easy, and then you hit this kind of head wall, and every any given year it, it varies. But then you're kind of, this is I don't know if this climbing. wall would be accomplished by too many, you said, old fat ladies. No, it, look, the, <laughs> the ladders are in place, and there's fixed line in place. I mean, you're you're trudging up. It looks, it looks steep and difficult, but um, it's not that bad, and you're on a fixed line. So you're just okay. kind of, you're attached to a tether that moves up the line as you walk, and if you right. slip, you're going to hang on that. Okay. Yeah. And how long does that, just that one section there, how long would that take you? Well, so it, it varies. So okay. the, the name of the game in acclimatization is you climb high, sleep low. That's the old saying. And so the first day when we got to advanced base camp, we probably didn't do anything. We just hung out for a day or two. And then probably the third day, we then we said, let's go walk out to the North Coal. And so that day we probably walked out to the foot of it and halfway up the slope. 
Oh. Uh, and then we'd but you go didn't all stay the, there. You... No, then we'd walk all the way back to advanced base camp, sleep the night, and the next day maybe not do anything. And what's this doing to your body? So you're stressing your body out. You're, a whole bunch of things happen, like the pressure needs to, your body needs to adjust to the pressure changes, but it also needs to produce more red blood cells. And how your body does that is it, I think it's in your bone marrow, it detects, hey, we haven't got enough oxygen. And so it spits out, uh, there's a hormone that's spit out, a liver hormone or a kidney hormone, I don't know what. Okay. It, uh, it sends itself out erythropoietin. Uh, this is how cyclists cheat sometimes. They take synthetic erythropoietin, and it tells your body, hey, start producing red blood cells. Okay. And so that process takes time. So you want to go up so that your body gets stressed and says, hey, we haven't got enough, so that it'll start the process of making them. But then you want to hang out in an environment where your body's able to make them without being stressed. Yeah. So that's the idea of going okay. up, stressing the body out, but being in a position where the body can then. So climb steps. high, sleep low. Yeah. So how many times did you kind of move up to North Coast, but sleep at this advanced base camp until you make the next move and whatever that move is? I think it was probably twice. Okay. To actually to the top of the North Pole. And maybe even, so we went up to climb the North Pole to get there several times without even getting there. We got to the base of that photo that we were looking at. Right. And then we went down. So that was the second time up. And then the third time up, we went right to the camp and we dumped a bunch of stuff. And, and you're carrying pretty much everything at this point. I mean, you and your sh the Sherpas, I mean. We're not carrying that much because, no. uh, gratefully, this is the nice part about having Sherpa support, is, uh, you know, Dawa and his dad and uh, Tendorji had already packed the tents up there. Oh, wow. And they'd gradually started ferrying uh, oxygen bottles up, too. So while we're acclimatizing, they're better acclimatized because a couple of, two of those guys had arrived earlier than we did and were already acclimatizing right. on the mountain before we got there. So we're not schlepping that much, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the leisure <laughs> tour, for sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, maybe. Yeah. But, so, okay, so you get to you get to North Coal, and do you, at, at some point, you sleep at North Coal, or you sleep yeah. higher? So it, we slept at the North Coal that night uh, That when we finally arrived there, and then we went out for a walk the next day, and we didn't get far. Yeah. And then we, uh, then we said, hey, okay, well, let's head back down to Advanced Base Camp. And... I don't know if we went up and spent another night at the North Pole or not. I don't think we did because about a little more than a week will have gone by because every time you've gone out for one of these walks, you're generally taking a rest day. Right. So it's you're, you never want to overdo it. You always want to be, oh, that was tiring, and now I'm gonna. T I could go again today. Yeah. But let's stay calm here and let's let acclimatization do its thing. Yeah. Then at some point you start looking at the weather and start asking around, and everyone's got different weather services. And I had Jen you know, uh, on the sat phone telling me about a couple of weather services at, uh, what's that, uh, mountainforecast.com okay. in 2012 I was using. Steve had also contracted a guy in Seattle to feed us his uh, weather report, a meteorologist who was giving us, our, uh, you know, a private report. And many of the commercial expeditions are getting their own weather reports. Yeah. So trying to figure out when is the weather window coming, when are we going to be able to go, and then liaising with the Chinese Mountaineering Association, who are putting up the fixed line to the summit. And every what is that? What do you mean a fixed line? Well, so starting from the high camp at 8,300 meters, uh -huh. that's the very highest camp. And that's, uh, let's see, that they're identifying that as Camp 6 at 27,200 feet. Okay. And that's a camp from there. Uh, the Chinese Mountaineering Association now fixes the line every season. And lots of its remnant line from years before. But what is a line? What does that mean? So they f they they start getting a rope and they attach the rope with pitons and ice screws uh, and whatever, 
to the mountain so that there's a way that someone can always be tethered for the remainder of the climb. Oh, it really? It makes the climb significantly safer. Far few people are going to die as a result of falling. Oh, I see. Right? Okay. Uh, so they don't want anybody up there until they've done it. So it's kind of like, hey, nobody goes up until we're done. And so we're hanging out in their tent talking to them. Hey, when are you guys going? When are you going to put the line up? What's the day? Oh, so this is at the very beginning of the season. You're one of the first people to go up this. this, Yeah. yeah, Well, everybody's coalescing and trying to be ready for that first. first How many people are we talking about here? You mentioned at one point 40 people in a lineup. Yeah, it was a light year. in in There were twice as many people on the north side in 2009 as there were in 2012. In 2012, I think there was a couple hundred of us whereas there were 400 of us in the year wow. 2009. It's a big number. Yeah, but it's and relatively, I mean, it's not that many for how big the route really is, how That's far true. people can get We're talking about the tallest out. mountain in the world. Yeah. The <laughs> south side has way bigger numbers. Do they really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the numbers were on the south side that year, but they would have been substantially higher. Why? Uh, just more people go that way. But why do they do go that way? It's a, I described it as a friendlier route. Okay. Um, there's a higher success ratio there. You yeah. get to be in Nepal instead of in Tibet. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely more remote Tibet. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, it's a good question. I would yeah. always go to the north side. It's a yeah. safer route. It right. just makes more sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you so you get so where is the last place that you sleep over sleep out uh, until you actually make a run for the summit? So that's that camp uh, six. And camp so six, okay. after we went down from the North Coal. We acclimatized further, uh, and then we decided when we knew when the day was going to be, we got ourselves in position at the North Coal, knowing that by the time we got up to that high camp, Camp 6, on this map at 27,000, that we would be ready to climb and that the fixed line would be in and that the weather was going to be right. Okay, you need all those things working for you. Yeah, So and from the North Coal, so you go up to the North Coal, you spend a night. Then you go up to the next camp. uh, They've got us Camp 5 here. And you spend a night, and then you go up to the next camp, which is the high camp. Now, this is at 8,300 meters. So to put it in perspective, it's yeah. higher than Chihoyu. We're sleeping at the summit, higher than the summit of my previous biggest mountain. Wow. It's way up there. This is the highest camp on the planet. You know, it's, this is the place. Are you, are, you, are you locked into some oxygen mass all the time at this level? We started breathing oxygen right at the North Coal. And it used to be historically that you wouldn't start till higher, but at very low flows. And you sleep with it at night at very low flows with just a nasal cannula, and you just feel great the whole time. Um, so that's the reason to do it, because yeah. you're not burning that much extra oxygen. And yeah. uh, it's not like anyone's going to give you a pat on the back for, well, you didn't use as much oxygen <laughs> yeah, as that guy. Sure. You know? So, hey, let's let's use it the whole way. And that's the general philosophy these days. Yeah, There is a camp, there is a, uh, a high camp photo if you want to go to that. Yeah, let's take a look. Take a peek. Uh, so, yep, that's it right there. So that's the high camp right there, and you can that's see camp the, number six. They're calling it. This yeah, is the, exactly. Um, this is on a major slope, like yep. And they kind of e- eke out little platforms. Uh, there are definitely some. It's it's it looks more slope than maybe it actually is. Okay. Maybe the photo is a little off kilter, but it is. It is the camp is on a slope. There can be very high winds here. You're you're at eighty three hundred meters. You are way up there. Yeah. And the route you can see here, it's foreshortened. But basically above the camp at the left-hand side of the photograph, you, you're working your way up onto the ridge, and then you basically climb that entire ridge until you get up to, uh, you can see kind of the foreshortened summit period pyramid. Is that story. the peak on the right there? Kind of. It's, oh. You can't see the whole thing. You kind of work your way around it, and then it's still a little higher past that. But the view, the angle wow. is such you can't see the actual top. What other pictures do we have here? 
Yeah, so the next one is en route, uh, getting close to that this pyramid is we saw Look, in the last photo. Sam, you're like, you're, you're basically, uh, what is this? Tell, tell me about this. This is incredible. Yeah, so this is the sun has just started coming up, and there was a snow slope right around the corner behind us that we'd been coming up, and then we turned the corner onto this kind of thin traverse. And you can see why somebody might want fixed line here, because it's pretty thin, <laughs> and the fall to the side is not a, not a fall you'd want to take. And I'm just taking the guy in the photo here is Chris, or sorry, um, Steve, and I'm taking the photo just in front of him. And uh, yeah, the sun's just coming up. This was an amazing moment. This was magic. Yeah. Watching the sun come up. And we had no wind on the climb. So the whole ridge, and imagine if you're on a ridge, if there was wind, you'd oh, get how? it. Yeah. And there wasn't. It was wow, magic. Really? It was just beautiful climbing. At the beginning of our conversation, you talked about in. Um, you were doing that solo climb in the middle of the like in the, in, it was dark yeah and uh you know i i wouldn't understand what you're talking about if i hadn't gone and done rainier mm -hmm. and the reason you're climbing in the dark is because your distances you're going are so long you need to start early yeah is that right well yeah absolutely and the chances of weather happening are higher during the day the sun drives the wind you know oh. so there's all and, okay. and the snow is firmer at this altitude it's kind of irrelevant uh, generally a place like Rainier would make a big difference if you're climbing at two o'clock in the afternoon or if you were climbing at two o'clock in the morning the snow conditions would be much much different right here not a huge difference we left at nine o'clock at night and we summited at six o'clock in the morning you, you left the, you, you basically climbed the entire evening yeah so we didn't sleep that night well we did we 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 ate and we made a few phone calls on the sat phone and then we kind of slept for a couple hours and then we got up at nine o'clock, ate again, and then off we went. And it was, I, there's so no way. Like, not, not only are you climbing the highest mountain in the world, but you're doing it at nighttime. Yeah. It, I mean, the average person I think would think that's completely crazy. Oh, you might as well just go blindfolded. <laughs> <laughs> I was so good. And have a couple her. of shots of tequila along the way to really make it fun. Are you like, are you? <laughs> like nervous like to the point where it's hard to sleep or like how are you feeling when you know the next morning or the night when you wake up you're summiting what's your what's your feeling inside well for me it was uh it was doubt you know and that's why yeah. i climb uh, we talked about that way earlier you know hey i'm i'm encountering every time i go climbing i'm encountering fear and doubt and then by doing it by doing the activity I have to be wise and know, am I not, am I backing off something because I'm afraid or am I backing it off because I have self-doubt or is it genuinely a bad idea and today's not the day to do it because it's dangerous. Right. And knowing the difference between fear and, you know, is now the opportunity or is yeah. now the moment to back off and why am I doing it? So it's a great uh, spiritual discipline. Is and this goes I, back to, climbing. yeah, sure. So, and this goes back to what you're saying about having, you know, wisdom, having experience is such a big factor. Oh yeah, yeah. In, in this, so sorry, just this picture here. This you are at base camp, uh, at, at camp number six at this point, or no? So this is uh, we're way up at the pyramid now. So if you look at that, uh, the top pyramid in the photo, and just around the corner, out of view to the right. Yeah. We've just walked around that corner basically. On, on that next picture that on we were, or the picture we were just, we're just this one here. At. Yeah. So we've just come around that corner. Okay. Yeah. And now, are you are you sleeping anywhere past this point? No, this is it. So, We're almost at okay. the summit. We're about oh, a half okay. an hour from the summit here. Okay, so you're on your you're on your way, half an hour from the summit. And if we were down here at sea level, we'd be ten minutes from the summit. Or oh, it's right there. You know, you smell it. You know, you're getting yeah. close. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what else do we have for pictures here? That's on top. Yeah. That's on top. Now, what is yeah. this thing I saw? I noticed this on your backpack. What are you holding there? What is that? I'm holding a torch. And again, uh, I brought this torch from the meditation center. So this is the, the peace run, something the meditation center runs and has been for years. 
this uh, global peace run where a torch is carried uh, and held by people hand to hand and run around the world. And I said, hey, I'll take that to the summit of Everest for you. What do you think? And they said, oh, absolutely. We'll, sh we'll send it off to you. This was a light one. It was carbon fiber wrapped. And I didn't put any fuel in it. It was too much. You know, I didn't yeah. want to get into trying to get it lit at uh, 8,800 8, meters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so w at what time? Oh, there you are. Oh, with there's, the the, there's Jen and Madeline and Madeline on the left again. This is before my other daughter, Emma. Yeah. You can see the reflection you, of my goggles. Of, yeah, it's uh, amazing. Yeah. You, you look like uh, like a, a TIE fighter from Star Wars with <laughs> that thing on. So yeah. uh, is it freezing? I mean, how cold are we in this weather up at this level? It really wasn't that bad. It got a mm -hmm. lot windier on the summit because uh, yeah. there was almost no wind on the ridge. And then when we hit the summit, there was actually wind. I think it was about minus 20. Okay. which I consider not that cold. Like people yeah. in Canada go through a lot worse <laughs> than that all over the place, you know. But at altitude without oxygen, that would have been really cold. Yeah. With oxygen, your body's really able to cope with, uh, with minus 20. And it was a little windy. You can see I've taken off my big glove on my left or my right hand. You're right, yeah. It's on the left side of the photo. And I've got just my little liner glove. And I didn't want to keep it out like that for too long. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, a minute later, I was like, ooh, I'm going to put my glove back on. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, now this is this this is a bit of an eerie picture for those folks that are uh, watching. You just be, be be aware. So if you look at this picture carefully, there's somebody there, but they're not. Their heart's not beating. Yeah, that you can see in the shadow, and and somebody looking at this might have to look carefully because they're in the shadow, uh, just left of where the rope is in the photo. Can you zoom into that, Ross? And there's an old there's a, a body of somebody who many years ago. Uh, who knows how this particular person died? I don't know, but they, they never went home. And there are bodies littered along this route. One of the really uh, tragic things on that 2012 trip is one of the people who was on our permit, he wasn't climbing with us, but he shared our tent facility uh, with our cook. So I played a lot of cards with him, spent a lot of time with him, a guy named uh, uh, Juan. And he was probably not properly acclimatized he ended up dying on this trip on his way down from the summit. Same day we were there, and we actually ran into him um, at the first section of climbing called the first step, where it's kind of a little tricky. And I remember even then thinking, he looks like he's struggling, you know, and, and told him I took off my goggles and pulled off my face mask, my oxygen mask, and said, hey, look, Juan, you got to be able to get back too. And then I put the mask back on, and Juan said, oh, I'm sorry for slowing you guys up. And I thought, that wasn't the right answer to my question, but it yeah. was still low enough, and a Sherpa was there, and I thought, nah, they're going to turn back. They're, you know, We're just barely started here. There's no way they're going to wind up at the summit. But I, we ran into them at that same spot that we had the photo right around that pyramid, that yeah. thin traverse. When we were on our way down, I ran, to, ran into Juan right there, and he was with the Sherpa he was climbing with, and he was happy. He looked tired, but I was thinking— They were going up? They were going up. It, he only had a half an hour left, and I thought to myself, well, maybe one's going to be fine. Maybe he's just a bad climber, like a rock climber, because it yeah. looked like he really struggled to get through this this uh, rock step. And uh, But he got this far. Boy, he's yeah. probably going to make it. It's only half an hour away. It's 6.30 in the morning. He's going to be fine. Yeah. Know? And uh, so anyway, on our way down, uh, we ran into all these other bodies. I ran into another uh, body on the way up of a guy named Frank. Uh, Zebart, is that what his name is? He was from Calgary, and I met him in 2009. I had to walk over his body at the base of the third step uh, to, to get up. And wow. so, yeah, there's a death toll up there. Um, like, how, how many bodies would you end up seeing on, uh, on this 
like on this expedition? I think I saw 10. Really? And the first one in the dark was the, the most kind of, it was surprising, but not terrifying or anything. Yeah. Just like, oh, what's that? Uh, and a guy, a body named Green Boots. And so there's this, you're walking along the trail and there's a, just a set of legs and boots sticking out. And you're kind of like, oh, who's there? And you turn your light to go look at who's there. And it's somebody who took a rest a long time ago uh, and didn't get up. Wow. And yeah, they're just there. We saw about 10 bodies. Wow. And there are and more who are hidden in places that you just wouldn't see them unless you went looking for them. Yeah. yeah. I guess there's no recovery of these people, right? I mean, you know, if you're, you're so, your resources are so sparse and your body's probably exhausted. I mean, who's going to, I mean, just even to get a guy like that yeah. out of the mountain would be impossible. You'd I have mean. to mount a whole expedition for the sole purpose of going up there and moving the body. Yeah. And to get it down would be a whole nother thing like to mostly if people are moving that's all they're doing they're moving the body off the route so that people aren't walking into them sometimes uh -huh. families will hire teams of sherpas to go up and do this sort of thing but as a general rule they're just kind of left where they are uh, this is so. just such an eerie picture i mean yeah. it's weird because where you look at the guy i mean that's obviously where he last finished and i mean yeah. it's like how did he get there this is the faces of some of these folks are mummified you know so that it's that right? uh it's if you've seen an egyptian you know mummy yeah. before it's just like that they're freeze-dried birds don't fly that high they'll fly through the seven thousand meter pass the big uh himalayan griffins big vultures will fly through uh, kites uh, maybe is the bird that flies through there but the, there's nothing else getting this high and so the bodies just remain and get freeze dried. Yeah. When you when you see these people like this image or green boots, or especially if you see someone that you knew, does it impact you at all um, mentally, emotionally while you're on route, or you're just is it just something that is uh, you realize afterwards, or does it have any impact on you at all? It it for me at least it was amazingly easy to dissociate and mm -hmm. just you know. Uh, and maybe it's because of the place you're in. Yeah. And maybe it's because it's so surreal. It's not the kind, you can't go and do this anywhere else. Right. You know, I think if you could go to the Valley of Kings in Egypt and you could see a whole bunch of mummies all in the same place, but this is strange. Yeah. There's no other place where you can see bodies that it's, and it's almost like a historic, uh, it's like a museum piece because there are people who have died at all different, in different years wearing different sure. clothing. Uh, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's a almost time fascinating uh, rather than terrifying. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay, so let's uh, talk about that summit and then your experience going down afterwards. Uh, maybe we can pull that summit picture up one more time, Ross. So, Sam, how how long do you, uh, this is not the summit? Is that correct? correct? No, okay, it was a great picture. Camp, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is that you're at the summit. What what is it like at the moment while you're there? Is there any kind of these sort of feeling you go through thinking like I'm at the highest point in the entire planet of earth. Yeah. Did you have anything like that, <laughs> that moment or did it come later or? Yeah, I definitely had that particular feeling, but the most substantial feeling is one of deep satisfaction. Okay. Because right up until the moment of getting to the summit, I was unsure of my own capacity to do it. Really? And that's the reason to do these things is sure. You want to do something that's difficult that you think you can do, but until you do it, you're not sure. And then the sense of accomplishment, the sense of overcoming that obstacle, that was more principle in my mind than, oh, I'm at the highest point on earth. I was just really satisfied, hey, I did it. And not only did I do it, it, it all went really smoothly and I felt very prepared the whole time, Yeah, which uh, was a great feeling too, to always have been wondering, I don't know, is this for me? Maybe I, you know, 
harkening back to Waskaran and getting sick and giving up on mountaineering altogether to finally be there. Yeah. Was a, what an amazing journey. journey. Yeah. But it was not over because, you know, it's not like you get to the top and then someone just comes <laughs> along and picks you up in a helicopter yeah. and you're all done. No. I mean, there's probably, I imagine some people die on their return from the summit. Maybe. I don't know. Um, they, they sure do. And in fact, that's the way that uh, we were talking a little earlier about Wong, Wong. who died on the way back. So uh, he actually summited. He summited. He did get to the top. And then he died on his way down. We didn't find that. And out how did he die? We were back at camp. He, you know, honestly, I don't know because I wasn't there. What do you think? I suspect he ran out of oxygen, and he died of something like pulmonary edema. Wow. You know, ultimately he just couldn't move, and once he couldn't move, his sherpa couldn't carry him, uh, and that was the end of it. You know, he just stayed there until he, he died. Yeah. So you're you're now going on. Where is this picture? By this way? is in base camp before we left to go up. Actually, this is before this is when we first got to base camp, and this is the photo of the team. Yeah. The far left, uh, I think it's Surinder, who is kind of the base camp manager, uh, and next to him is Perba, who is the the shortest shortest guy in the crew with a blue jacket. I'm in the red jacket next to him with a white scarf on. Yeah. Uh, in the middle is our cook and our cook's helper to the right of him. Uh, Steve is on the right there with the white sunglasses. On the far right is Dawa, who is son of Purba on the other side. And right front and center there is uh, Ten Dorji, uh, who's just the amazing The guy you said was climber. just amazing. Just amazing yeah. climber. And unfortunately, yeah, he passed he away. He passed away. The, the 16 uh, deaths, yeah. 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 So you're, you've hit that summit. It's 6 in the morning. Yep. And now you've got to make an, a descent. How long are you up at the summit for? I spent about 20 minutes there, uh, took a few photos. I was really lucky because on the way up, just past the section, the thin section of the traverse that we looked at in that photo, we kind of had a bottleneck because a guy, suddenly his oxygen was out and he wanted to change his bottle. And so everyone's starting to stack up behind him on this fixed line. And I kind of looked around and I thought, you know, I feel pretty comfortable on this terrain and I know it's going to take him, you know, five minutes to change his bottle. And I unclipped myself from the rope walked around him, clipped myself back in and kept walking. No one else felt, or at least the person behind me didn't feel confident <laughs> enough to do that. And then everyone behind them, it's like progressively more people to walk around. Right. Everyone yeah, really yeah. wanted to do it. When I got to the top, there was nobody there but me. No way. It was awesome. But there was also no one to take a photo of me. But that moment was incredible. <laughs> that must have Nobody been. had been up from the south side yet either. So I was just literally walking over to the, I walked right up to the summit on my own, you know, planted my ice axe and uh, just kind of knelt down and had a quiet moment of like all by myself for about, I'd say about five minutes. Wow. And when I actually kind of stopped what I was doing and looked around, there were 20 people around me. You know, wow. I was just like looked up like, whoa, everybody's here now. There's yeah. some four 4,000 some odd people that have summited Everest. You're probably one, I'll bet you, of only a couple hundred that have been able to say, I was on the top Everest by myself. By myself, yeah, yeah. I've forgotten about that. That's, that's true. That's, that's fascinating. About. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was really that was one of the best moments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, that's awesome, man. <laughs> that's you should yeah. be very proud of yourself. That's such an amazing journey. So, so you come back down. Where did you sleep the first night uh, after summiting? Where would you have slept? Well, we went back to Camp Six, and so Camp I six, left okay. the summit, and I I was moving pretty quick on my own, heading down. Uh, I swapped out an oxygen bottle. Perba swapped that out with me. And then I said to Perba, hey, go back and help Steve, make sure he gets down okay. I, I knew he had less climbing uh, experience and wanted to make sure he felt comfortable. So I carried on down to the second step. And you can see in this photo here, it says the second step. Uh, anyway, Ten Dorji, the superstar, ran down from the summit. 
to check and make sure that my oxygen was okay. Hey, if you, well, let's check your oxygen level. You know, are you all right? <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm okay, perfect. We, we swapped it out. Go back and help Steve, man. Thank you. And then so then he ran back up to go and help. Wow. Like, I, I, unbelievable. Incredible. <laughs> so then I worked my way down to the high camp, and I spent a couple hours waiting for Steve and the Sherpas to get back. And I was on the phone with Jen, and I was saying, well, I really don't want to stay at this elevation. You know, this is the kind of place things can go wrong. Yeah. If they do go wrong, sure. I could get out of here. And Jen was urging me to do it, and I said I would, but I, I didn't. I ended up waiting for Steve. And when Steve got there a few hours later, I said, hey, let's go down. And he said, oh, I'm too tired, man. And I said, oh, okay. Let's so you stayed there that night? We spent the night. And through that night— With your Sherpas as well. Yep, they stayed yep, with you the whole time? Yep, the three guys, uh, three Sherpas were with us. And that night, uh, I before going to sleep— and I, when I, we went to sleep at 5 o'clock in the evening or something, yeah. I, I yelled over and I said, hey, is, uh, is Juan back? And they said, yes, yes, Spanish, okay, Spanish, okay. All right, okay, cool. We're, I went to sleep. Yeah. Next morning, I get up. It's early in the morning. Now it's probably 4 in the morning or something. And, uh, and the, I poke my head out of the tent. And we're, tent doors are right next to each other. Unzip mine, and I'm talking to uh, Ten Dorji. And he said, oh, Spanish. Spanish. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You told me yesterday Juan was okay. And he's like, no, no, Spanish. So it, it, then they start talking to Dawa, who has better English, who said, oh, yeah, no, Juan didn't, you know, Juan didn't get back last night. His Sherpa didn't get in until 9 o'clock at night, and uh, Juan died on the second step. So that's when we found out that Juan had died, which was a, a real uh, psychological hit, and now the wind was up. And I'm outside, fully dressed, ready to go. I'm just put all my gear on. I'm like, Steve, get We're, your get your shit on. Let's get out of here. It was I'm like a down. massive reality slap in yeah. the face of just, the danger you could still be in. Let's wrap it up and get out of here. Yeah. And uh, and then I waited for like half an hour for Steve to get ready. It must have been the longest half an hour of your life. Torturing him. Yeah. Get out of there. I find out later <laughs> he's making this video where he's he's having a teary eyed moment, which I understand. But he's spending a half an hour like taking video footage of him talking about how Juan has died and how sad he is about it. And meanwhile, I'm like yelling at him from outside the tent, get the hell out of here. What are you doing? I had no idea until I saw the video later. I was so angry about that. Oh, I can imagine. Out later. Anyway, he finally gets out of the tent, and I, and I said, okay, let's go. We're strapping on. We're not moving until we get down to base camp or until we get down yeah. to advanced base camp. Time to go. And then he kind of looked at me like, oh, I don't know. And then I looked over at the three Sherpas and said, you guys, you're taking Steve down. And then, then I left. You left. And you <laughs> yeah. you went down by yourself the rest yeah. of the way? Again, it's all fixed line down sure. uh, down to basically. Weather was where, pretty good for you? It, it was windy where we were, but not, no in, inclement weather, really. Just a yeah. little windy. And, and how many hours would it have taken you to get down to the base camp from there? I think I got down to the glacier at the bottom of everything about 11 o'clock in the morning, and I don't know when I left, maybe 6 or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a few hours. Yeah. yeah. Wow. What a neat experience. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, it, it's uh, After talking about all this, I, I, I <laughs> you're a real estate agent in Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I sell real estate. <laughs> so um, just to, before we wrap it up here, like, so how long have you been a realtor here in Vancouver for? Uh, I think it's 12 years now, maybe yeah. 13, yeah. which uh, in most industries isn't a long time, but in real estate it is. There's so many new people in it all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know you've got a great yeah. reputation in the business. Let's do a plug for you. What's your website, Sam? Uh, SamWyatt.com. Sam Wyatt. Well, that's where yeah. we saw the picture. That's a there we go. pretty fantastic. Scrolling up. And uh, any, uh, any advice about uh, the market right now? I mean... It is a seriously downtrending market. Uh, uh -huh. West side detached house prices are falling precipitously and it's likely to continue. Yeah. Uh, so that 
I mean, people who are living happily ever after doesn't really mean much. Whatever, what's up or down, I'm living here. Anyone who is wanting to uh, sell a smaller place and get a bigger place, prime time. Oh, right. It's beautiful time. Selling your your uh, three bedroom townhome so you can buy a house finally might have been waiting a long time. Prime time for that. Yeah. Upgrades. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, man, I, I'd love to have you come in again to talk about something else other than Everest. I mean, another these other trips you've done, I mean, they'd probably just as fascinating. Um, but this has been great. I've I've learned a lot. And uh, well, thanks for having th- me on. Yeah, no, yeah this, this is really fun to share this stuff. Yeah. Sam Wyatt, thank you very much. Thank you.